I'm Tannis McDonald. Welcome to Watershed Writers Podcast. In this episode, we ask some tough questions. What would you do if you were ordered to leave the country where your family had lived for three or four generations? Where would you decide to go? And how fast could you arrange to leave? Could you do it in 90 days? Could you get immigration permissions, plane tickets, passports, transfer of money? Tasneem Jamal thought about these questions and how to respect and fictionalize the stories told by her Asian Ugandan family. We talk about migrant writing in Canadian literature and the challenge of writing across generations in her novel, Where the Air is Sweet. We're glad to have you join us. This podcast series is for readers and for writers, for people interested in how writing works and why it's vital to where and how we live. We record in the Grand River Watershed region, the traditional territories of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. We feature interviews with local novelists, poets, playwrights, and essayists, and offer a showcase for a community of nationally known writers, as well as writers who are just getting started. What are we connected by, by, by? You can find more about future podcast episodes on our website, watershedwriters.ca, on our Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast channels. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. On Watershed Writers, we are sharing our anticipation, excitement, and curiosity. We are listening local, talking global with you, our audience. And it is my pleasure to introduce our guest for this episode, novelist Tasneem Jamal. Tasneem was born in Barrera, Uganda, and she immigrated to Canada with her family in 1975, settling in Kitchener. She worked as a news editor at the Globe and Mail and as a copy editor at Saturday Night Magazine. Her personal essays and journalism have appeared in Chatelaine, Saturday Night Magazine, and the Literary Review of Canada. But it is her debut novel, Where the Air is Sweet, which was published to critical acclaim in 2014 that we'll be talking about on this episode. What would you do? if you were ordered to leave the country where your family had lived for three or four generations? Where would you decide to go? And how fast could you arrange to leave? What would you pack? Could you do it in 90 days? Immigration permissions, plane tickets, passports, transfer of money? What of traveling with your elderly family members and those who are sick? What about preparing the children to go? Where the Air is Sweet covers the years before and after an especially turbulent time in the 1970s during a period of ethnic cleansing in Uganda, when Idi Amin ordered all Ugandans of Asian heritage to leave the country where they had lived for generations. I talk with Tasneem about migrant writing in Canadian literature, the challenge of writing across generations, and the way her grandfather inspired the novel. I first met Tasneem a few years ago when she was on a panel organized by Emily Urquhart, the author of Age of Creativity. The writers on the panel discussed the ways and means of nonfiction writing. Tasneem brought her journalistic skills to the panel discussion, but she also introduced several questions about the split or the thin line between writing fiction and nonfiction. We pick up some of that conversation in this episode 
returning to the many questions that come up when turning a series of family stories into a novel. Where the Air is Sweet made quite a splash the year it was published. And one of the results was that Tasneem was named one of 12 rising Canlit stars on CBC's annual list of writers to watch. I want to offer some words now from reviewer Christine Sismondo that she wrote in review of the novel in the Toronto Star. Quote, Jamal does a brilliant job exploring the moving target of gender politics at play. At first between two cultures, and then later as the family walks the line between tradition and modernity, all the while negotiating the complicated mess left behind by the British Empire's colonial policies. And that's the end of that quotation. Tasneem wrote much of Where the Air is Sweet in Tanzania during what she calls a follow your dream year that didn't turn out the way she envisioned. But that year was a turnaround year for her as a writer because she completed the draft of the novel. And now she's hard at work on a new novel, a story of friendship, uncertainty, and a Kitchener adolescence. Welcome, Tasneem, to Watershed Writers. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to talk to you. Me too. And, and the first thing I want to ask you about is with a little bit of a Kitchener context, because I know you lived here when you were a child and that you moved away and you've returned to the area. I'm interested in hearing about some differences between uh, what it was like uh, when you moved here and what it's like to live here as an adult. Well, it's, it's an interesting question because I came to Kitchener um, when I was six years old and grew up here. And then I moved to Toronto for university and lived in Toronto for about 12 years, Hamilton for a few years, lived in East Africa for a few years, and then was 40 when I came back. So I kind of have two very different experiences of the city as, as a really as a kid and then as a fully grown adult. So it's, uh, it, it's almost like it's almost like a different place in, in many ways, uh, so that when I do see something familiar from my childhood, it's, it's a bit startling. And I've driven in neighborhoods where I grew up, and, and frankly, they're, they're quite unrecognizable because of the development. It's a funny thing. I do often think of it as two different places because everything has changed so much visually, even, even the way we talk about it now. You know, uh, you, you describe it as a watershed. And growing up, I just didn't think of Kitchener in any geographic sense, you know, or mm -hmm. really even in a historical sense. I don't remember being really taught anything about living in Kitchener or anything about the history of the land itself. It's just felt like a different place. What's been um, a continuation has been family. And that's that's what brought me back. My, my parents uh, live here. My father died uh, a year ago, but my, my mom is here. My siblings uh, ended up back here as well. That's been the connection. My, my childhood memories are a children's perspective of a place. And the book I'm working on now, the, the novel I'm working on, um, a large part of it set in 1970s Kitchener. And so that landscape has really stayed in my mind. I didn't realize how much until this book sort of started to emerge in me. So it's really fascinating. So I imagine I will have even more to say about this as I keep writing uh, and, and keep revisiting those places in my mind and then physically, you know, the, so that I think there'll be much more of a conscious connection to Kitchener as, as a place um, in my mind and in reality. I mean, I, I think it's interesting that it's becoming a kind of imaginative landscape for you, as well as uh, you know, a, a landscape that existed in reality and in material contexts. I mean, who knows, maybe the fact that it's changed so much has made it uh, a more fertile imaginative reality uh, for you. Had it stayed exactly the same, maybe there wouldn't be a book in it, right? 
yeah, maybe I, I'm kind of excavating my memories to, to find that childhood landscape. I was really drawn to it. Neighborhoods, physical neighborhoods uh, that I visited as a child, that I lived in, that I walked around in, you know, they're really quite powerful in my mind, like walking to the Lyric movie theater uh, in downtown Kitchener. A friend of mine lived somewhat in the area and we would walk downtown to go, to go see movies, you know, stuff like that, that it's just, it, in a sense, is a much more powerful uh, visual for me than what downtown Kitchener is now. It seems to be alive in my mind, the old Kitchener, in a way that maybe the, the current one is less, less so because I'm so sort of caught up in busyness now, right? Taking my kids here and there, well, not right now with COVID, it, just not living it in the same way that I did as a child, uh, which was a more of a visceral experience, a sensory filled experience. And full of intense relationships with other kids, no doubt. I'm just yeah. thinking of, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of my own adolescence, but I know this, <laughs> this is often true, right? I'm happy to hear this. And I, I, I'm, I'm interested too in how Kitchener situates itself in uh, your last novel, Where the Air is Sweet, that came out in 2014. I know that that was a book that simmered in your imagination for a long time. And uh, I also know that beginner writers are always very interested with what writers do with their ideas, like how they make them come to fruition, especially if it's based somewhat on family stories or on a family history. I get a lot of questions from beginner writers about, is this a real story? How do I write my family history? Can you say a little bit about how you began work with uh, what became Where the Air is Sweet and um, what your process was? It did simmer for a long time. It, uh, I like to say it gestated for about a good 20 years. My family's history was something that I, I wanted to, to examine in some way. Uh, I worked as a journalist. So for a time, I thought about a kind of journalistic type of approach, but there was just so much emotion around it. It was very charged for me because this was my early childhood and, um, you know, a fairly difficult time of displacement. And so it wasn't easy to, to grapple with. And I think that's why it needed to gestate for as long as it did. But for to actually get to the place where I, I could tell the story in, a, in any kind of narrative form, I think I had to, number one, it, it needed to be fiction because I, that really freed me. I didn't feel constrained by having to get it right by anyone else's standards or anyone else's memories. It was, this was my story. Uh, I, th that was important. A lot of the book takes place before uh, I was born. I needed to feel that I had the right to tell this story. So that was important. And as I said, it freed me uh, creatively. And um, if somebody were to ask, you know, what, what's the best way to approach something like this? I think it's important to remember that even if something is real, even if something has happened, if it's a memory, it's still in your mind. And in that sense, the two people can remember the same event quite differently, as we know. Uh, and, and we ourselves can remember an event differently, depending on when we're recalling it. So it's really malleable. It's not, it's not fixed. And, and I think once you realize that, it, it can really free up the writing of it, because then, in a sense, it's all made up, you know, it's, it's yes, it's based on something you remember, but you're not, you, you don't have to stick with that. That can be challenging for people. Well, you know, when, and, and I'm sure you've heard people say this when, oh, did that really happen? Or that didn't really happen like that. And you can get really bogged down, I think, uh, in, in that kind of thinking. Whereas if you accept that I'm in the present, in my mind, reliving something that happened, and I, I can let it flow in whichever direction I want. And, and that, re that I felt on a, on a sort of deeper level, on a level of process, that was what allowed me to write the book. 
I always tell beginner writers that the world is full of people who wrote uh, wrote a book thinking that it was nonfiction and then decided to market it as a novel because of the liberties that they decided to take with stories, <laughs> yes, right? Yes. Um, yeah, and I think you know that's that's fair enough. These are only marketing categories, after all, really. So we shouldn't go much further without saying what uh, where the air is sweet is a, is about, and it is about um, the expulsion of Asian Ugandans from. Uganda in the early uh, 1970s on the order of President for Life Idi Amin. Yeah, yeah, that's the that's the sort of the central event of of the book. Yeah, absolutely. And when I was reading it, I was young at the time that this happened as well, and I don't remember reading the numbers until mm. I, I read your book. And that's it was between sixty thousand and eighty thousand Southeast Asian Ugandans displaced, told to go. <clears throat> They couldn't take, uh, they could take very few possessions. Uh, many of them didn't have a place to go, even though uh, Amin said that uh, people should literally go back to India was mm -hmm. one of the phrases that he used. I also watched a fair amount of Amin speaking to prepare for today. And oh, okay. that was that was a creepy experience. <laughs> I don't yeah. mind telling you. <laughs> yeah. Here it is. It's a family story. It's an intergenerational story and it's an international story. That's an awful lot to take on. I'm interested in the fact that uh, I know you, part of your research was to ask your parents about their experience and your parents' friends of the same generation. But I also think I mean, it's interesting there to draw from history and also to fictionalize it. Can you tell me a, a little bit more about what you did with those stories? The way I, I wanted to tell the story was on a personal level you know kind of what prompted it was when i when i was young and people would ask me as as they do because i'm a, a woman of color uh growing up or where are you from and i would say uganda and and that would never be the end of the conversation because people would always wonder you're indian but you're from uganda and so then i would explain that my family had moved to Uganda and and I, and I would sense and and maybe some it was said explicitly at some point I don't know but I I came to believe people were not terribly sympathetic about the expulsion that it was like oh okay you know you were you're actually Indian but you briefly lived in Uganda and then and then you were kicked out and so I I wanted I wanted people to understand it was an uprooting that there were real ties uh, to Uganda I mean there, in my family we had members of our family were born lived and died only in east africa they, they never lived anywhere else and so i felt like that history and those people become erased uh, when people don't understand what it meant really i wanted readers of the book to understand the emotional loss that the expulsion was rather than you know indian traders which is often how it's described indian traders were expelled so that that was kind of what was behind how i wanted to tell it and so that's why the stories i wanted were personal I, I, because there's really nothing out there. I did, I, you know, I did some research um, on Ugandan, uh, modern Ugandan history, post-colonial history, and you'd get very little on the Asian uh, experience. You might get a paragraph about, as I said, these traders, the merchant class getting expelled, and that, and that was kind of it. I mean, it was factually correct. It didn't reveal how profound this loss was and, and what Uganda meant to, to us. So Speaking to my parents and friends, I, I got anecdotal um, information. I got stories. This, this, I wanted to get the sense of what, you know, what it felt like to be told that you know you've got ninety days to get out, and this is the only life you've known. And it speaking to uh, basically 
anyone who wanted to speak to me, who was willing to speak to me um, about their experience, uh, and then gathering that to get a general idea. My grandfather had written, hesitate to call them memoirs, but he sort of written some notes about his life, about certain businesses he had, that type of thing. It was a, a lot of details, but not a lot of emotion, but it was helpful because it just gave me a sense of, you know, the, the, the facts that you want. My father has a, a, had a mind of, um, he'd remember the exact make of the car, the brand of cigarette, <laughs> you know, those kinds of things. And that was wonderful. <laughs> so I, I took those stories because um, what really actually ended up being my, my, one of my most favorite things in the book was, was, was writing uh, about the relationships between people. And so that was where I could have a lot of creative freedom. And, that, and, that, and then I, did, I, I got to explore that type of thing. And so the, the history, I could research, which I did. Uh, I got the details from the family and friends about uh, what were you doing uh, when you heard about the coup? What, you know, what, what were things like? How did people react in Barara? How did they react in Kampala? Um, those kinds of things that you just really couldn't find anywhere. And then I would sort of gather that. And I really, I knew the arc of the story because it was going to be my family's experience, quite literally, from when my grandfather came to uh, Uganda until our family came to, to Kitchener. That, you know, this was the arc. So I knew that I knew that already at the beginning, and then it was just a matter of really the details and the themes I wanted to explore. Yeah, so that it was it was kind of a collection of sources essentially, and and then and in fact I had written a draft before I really dug into historical data, you know, news articles, uh, reports about specific political events, and then I made sure that those were all correct. So that was kind of the order. There's a, a review in the Toronto Star when the book came out by um, Christine Sismondo, and she wrote, quote, it's chilling in a way that reading a nonfiction account of ethnic cleansing sometimes fails to be. So as we're sitting here thinking about the, this difference between fiction and nonfiction, how do you receive a, you know, a, a quote like that, that the fiction is a, a more chilling account that nonfiction wouldn't, wouldn't cut it in some ways? I remember that review was, I loved it. And, and, um, and, <laughs> and it felt that line in particular was really validating because that, that was why I wrote fiction. It's like reading a, you know, a horrifying statistic in pure numbers of, of an ethnic cleansing or a Holocaust. Obviously you react, but it's a different reaction than one person's account, right? Because you can, you can sympathize on a, on a real human to human level, which can be a much more profound experience. And that was, that was something I wanted, I wanted to happen. And so to read that in a review and, and, and to hear that from people as well, that somebody who had nothing to do with Uganda or knew nothing about East Africa or South Asians. In fact, a, a, a man who had grown up in uh, Russia uh, told me that it reminded him of, of, of living in, in Stalin's Russia. So, you know, that, that you, can, you can connect on, a, on an emotional level, I think, with fiction because, because you immerse yourself right in that character. So it's, it's a very different experience than reading a nonfiction account. And speaking of immersing in a character, I, I was really, really invested in the character of uh, Raju in the, this older man, the grandfather figure. And, uh, but of course we meet him when he's a very young man. And as I'm waiting for this coup to happen 50 years later, you know, right? It's one of those things because if you know the history, you know it's coming up. Yeah. And then you watch him building this life, knowing that it's going to be taken away from him. 
right? Mm -hmm. So he's a young man, he's got a business and all the interaction I thought with his African neighbors, his um, Ugandan neighbors were, uh, was fascinating. The, his interaction with the child, um, with the, with the woman that he sometimes sleeps with. I, I thought, uh, and that was uh, a, a brilliant piece of the novel. And of course, I'm always thinking about, and now we have to think about, you know, um, people uh, of our grandfather's generation <laughs> having this kind of rich life, which is of course yeah. uh, a challenge, right? So how did you decide that he would be the main character? I mean, it wasn't just chronology, right? There was something about what he did that made him the core. A couple of uh, reasons. Um, one is that even as a child, when I would it's not a conversation we had often, but when I would ask my parents about coming to Canada and having having to leave, it was it was generally quite positive in a lot of ways. My father would talk. You know, they were they were young. They were in their thirties, healthy. Um, it was kind of a, it was kind of an adventure. You know, it was like a opportunity for a new life. But for my grandfather and his generation, it really it really was devastating. They were at a point where they were very late in life to start anew, and suddenly a, a man who had built a, a life with some pride had to be dependent. And the other thing was my grandfather lived with us in, in the last uh, few years of his life. And he died about two years after we came to Canada. So I was, I, was a, I was a kid, I was seven when he died, but he was very sweet. He would make our lunches. He'd you know, see us off to school in the morning, really gentle, a gentle, loving grandfather. Uh, but when my other relatives would come visit after he died, uh, they would talk about Bapa, as we called him, um, and what a terrifying figure Bapa was and how he was so overbearing and oh my gosh, Bapa, we would never say anything to upset him. And I, I just, it, it just amazed me. And so I was fascinated to know, like, what is the arc that a person goes through from being that guy to, to the really gentle, and he wasn't just gentle with me because I was his grandchild. He, that's just who he became at the end of his life. I wanted to just examine that arc. He's really in my mind, the, um, the soul of the book, you know, it's just sort of, we follow really watching this man become who he becomes. And as, as much as my father would describe him as a kind of, oh, it was so sad what happened to Papa. And, and I, I didn't see it that way. He became a, a really loving, flexible, open-hearted man in the end of his life. And he had been much more rigid and obstinate when he was younger. So I, so that was, yeah, that was why I decided that he was going to be sort of the main guy. And, 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 and in the case of Raju, as the book is fiction and fictionalized, but I, I really did stick historically to his life experience uh, as much as I could, um, more than any other character. And I, I also note that until the coup happens, it's uh, it, the main source of tension or conflict is, is in Raju as he adapts or doesn't adapt to the changing times, all kinds of things that to do with the changing times. And, uh, and I think it's time to talk about gender, I think, uh, in this. And I, I'm interested in also in the, the character of Muntaz, as this young woman of, a, of another, another generation who kind of doesn't want to take all of this, all of these patriarchal orders, right? But she also knows that if she has to rebel, she has to do it kind of subtly, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I was very much enjoying her negotiations in, in you know, sort of that family of men, like with her, um, her husband and her brothers-in-law, right? Who all have you know, different ways that they want, think they can save the family, but she's quite determined to, to make sure the family really gets saved. Yeah, Mumtaz is, um, she's, she's smart. I did want particularly the political history in the book to, to come through the eyes of a woman. That was something I was 
that, that was important to me for a couple of reasons. One is because I'm a news junkie. I, uh, you know, I was a journalist. That kind of stuff really fires me up. And, um, and in my, in my family, which um, is a, you know, I mean, it's, I, this is such a ridiculous way to put it, but it's, it's a sort of traditional South Asian family in that, um, and I say it's ridiculous because it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a generalized statement, but it's not, it's not an equal dynamic between men and women. And so growing up, the men would be in the living room if we're having a you know, family gathering uh, or friends, uh, they'd be in the living room talking politics and the women would be in the kitchen preparing dinner or but whatever they were doing, they weren't talking about politics. And, and I was always interested in that stuff. And so I, I, I felt kind of lost. And so I thought it would be interesting to have a character like Montaz uh, in that era. Within the Ismaili community, the women would have had quite a good education. There's, there's really no, there would have been no reason she couldn't be part of those conversations or that she wouldn't have been registering this stuff. Uh, that was by no means a leap. So she's, she can't help herself. She's interested. She's thoughtful. She's figuring things out. She's bright, but uh, in an intellectual sense, but she's also intuitive. So she's, she's able to pick up on things probably a little bit sooner than her husband, things that are going on, uh, you know, what's in the air, the shift in the air in, in uh, Uganda, those kinds of things. So she's a really useful character in terms of the, the narration, right? She can, she can really get the story across. And also it's, you know, it would have been a, a time where women were starting to sort of find their voices and, you know, birth control pill, uh, those types of things were becoming options and a little more freedoms. And, and jo- you know, Jaffer, her husband fancied himself a pretty modern guy. So he wanted her to drive, he wanted these things, but he also bristled at times at her outspokenness. Yeah. So those kinds of those kinds of nuances in, in her character, I think, I think made it a, a more interesting telling of the story. Yeah, I, I think so too. And you know, speaking of uh, speaking of the men in the family, I, I noted as we moved as the book moves towards towards the seventies that the book is always concerned with money, the making of money, the spending of money, what money can do. Is money powerful, or does it put you in a more vulnerable position, etc. Right. Mm-hmm. So making it, losing it, and using it, and in some ways we see, particularly in the second generation, Uganda as a world of opportunity turned into a kind of nightmare. And money is the one way, is one of the ways. Pardon me, is one of the ways that the family sees that they might be able to get out if they spend their money and make their money in particular ways. Now that's a it's a it's a big whole bunch of financial planning going on here for people trying to you know make their fortune. How did you approach this idea that sometimes what's going on in terms of making money is not 100% legal? I don't know that I would describe the book as being about making money to, or, or making your fortune. It was really for that particular family uh, that and also the larger Asian community it was a way to make a living. It was a way to, to live, right? And, and just because the Asians who, who went to East Africa largely came from Gujarat, the state of Gujarat, and they would have, and they were for the most part merchants, you know, they had shops in India. They, they wouldn't have been landowners uh, or farmers. Uh, they, they wouldn't have had the opportunity in, in Uganda to own land, uh, that, that wasn't a privilege for, for anyone from the Indian subcontinent. You can only lease land. Uh, if you were gonna come there 
you were going to run a business, you were going to work for somebody, you were going to trade goods, you know, so that money is just how you lived. Prior to the Asians coming to uh, East Africa, there wasn't even a currency-based economy. So that the first actual money in, in Uganda, Tanzania, and Kenya uh, were rupees from um, India. So the currency-based economy was was built by the Asians. And so, you know, it was how you lived. It was how you had your independence, how you had your... Um, your privilege, you know, it was, it was a wealth, but it was still a modest wealth. It was a house, not terribly big, certainly by North American standards, a vehicle or two. Joffre had a lot of good cars because they had an automobile business. So that when, at the time of the expulsion, there was a very small amount of money that you could take out of the country. And so the thought of having to start new somewhere, essentially penniless, was, was what drove the need to make money. So that for a character like Jaffer, he wants to take care of his family. He's now, the, he's now essentially the patriarch. He needs to have the means to do it. Everything has fallen to pieces in Uganda. So uh, nothing is fair anymore. Uh, and mm-hmm. it becomes easier to, I think, let those lines between legal and illegal blur. Uh, you, uh, so I think that is behind it. And also, to be fair, in um, certainly in East Africa, there would have already been a fairly decent degree of corruption going on anyway. Like if you want any work done, you pay a little bit extra, that kind of thing. So those things were going, there was a way to sort of conduct business, right? A little, little here, a little there. And so it wasn't a huge leap to then go to illegal schemes. Um, but, I, but I think it was, I, I do think it's, it spoke more to a sense that, well, I, we got to take care of ourselves. You know, we just, we were, we feel we were cheated. And so it's kind of all fair. I, I think that's kind of what was behind it for, certainly for Joffer and the type of man he was. You know, I also think too that there is that sense of disbelief, right? The, that you have 90 days to get out of the country. And so for at least 30 days, people think, no, not, not really, really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, right? And then they start to believe it maybe a little more in the next 30 and then it's in the next, the last 30 scrambling, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, um, so there, so there's that, right? That there is. A, uh, I mean, I, I like your your note that um, people people do what they had to because they were desperate, right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, there was the disbelief went on for quite a long time. Uh, certainly for this for this family and uh, for a lot of families. And it wasn't until there was an, a, a sort of an incursion from um, uh, forces that supported the previous prime minister of Abote uh, into into Uganda from Tanzania and. Uh, Amin responded brutally and curfews were put in place. And, and then it became real that this was, that it was dangerous and that it was real uh, because he, you know, Idi Amin, you, you've heard him speak. Uh, he's quite erratic and would say such ridiculous things and change his mind that it wasn't unreasonable to think, oh, you know, he'll just change his mind. I'm not going to uproot my entire family, you know, for, for this man's whims. It did take some time. And then suddenly you're, you're really quite desperate quite quickly. Yeah, I was watching him speaking to BBC journalists and they were trying to get him to say exactly what was going to happen. And he kept making jokes and laughing and saying, the British are my best friends. And I remember thinking, what, what's going on? I mean, I, I, felt, I felt for the journalists too, who were trying to figure out you know, what, what they were going to actually report on. Yeah, um, what do you do with this guy? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What did he actually say, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm interested in these these kinds of um, portrayals of Amin uh, a little later on in history. Did, did you see the, the Last King of Scotland? I did. I did. 
what did you think of, uh, of, I mean, I, I thought that was, it was interesting that we had a charismatic actor, Forrest Whitaker, playing mm -hmm. uh, Idi Amin in it, and he always seemed volatile and charismatic at the same time. And it was Yeah, so yeah no, he was great. My, my parents, in fact, and I, they would have had a better sense than I, I do, certainly remembering Amin, and they thought he was, he was spot on. Uh, they were quite chilled <laughs> by his performance. Uh, yeah, I thought, I thought he, he, was, he was great. I, uh, I read the book after I, I watched the film because I, what I noticed was the the absence of the Asian um, yes. people. <laughs> and I thought maybe they just left it out because it was a movie, but no, it, they didn't even exist in the book. So that was, there were sort of a, a number of um, moments I had leading into finally getting this book written. And that was one where I thought, okay, okay, somebody's got to tell their story. It was well done. It really got at the, the, the insanity of Amin. And uh, certainly there, uh, you wrote this at a time where there was actually quite a surge in refugee lit in, in Canadian literature. And I think of, um, Lawrence Hill's The Illegal and Sham Salvadorai's Hungry Ghosts and a number of other writers who were who were talking about um, about moments in history where you know where people had a kind of you know not just a diaspora but an actual expulsion and had to find other places to uh, to live. Yeah, I guess I, I wanted to know a little bit about you know what would a category like F refugee lit mean to you thinking about about your book situated in that kind of a grouping? My sense is the books that I would think of would be more immigrant books, more um, the experience of being a first generation immigrant and, and those challenges. Like I didn't I didn't feel like I was writing a, ref, a refugee book. I mean, obviously, you know, that that what happens in the book, um, it was it was more about movement just migrants in general uh, uh, being seen in a in a poor light you know with post 9-11 just sort of viewed with suspicion I would say mm -hmm. um, people people who want to move and what do they want and you know the idea that it's just it, not recognizing that as humanity that we that we we have done this we do this all the time we always move to go somewhere to to make a better life and that was really you know it's not just as, as the family is forced to do, not, not, not always a situation where if you stay, you die. And if you go, you know, you have to go. It's also, it's also a situation like Raju where, you know, he was okay. He would have had a pretty decent life uh, living in, in Maria, this, uh, this village in, in Gujarat that might not have a lot of opportunities, but he'd have been okay. But he wanted more, he wanted something else. And, and, and that's okay, you know, that, 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 mm -hmm. that is actually a really beautiful human impulse. And I, I wanted to, explore that and express and express that that it's natural and that and that it is healthy emotionally physically it's good for all of us uh, when we do this so I guess that's that's kind of where I was coming from in terms of refugee lit uh, if, if if I was at all will you uh, read from the book for us I will yes this is a section early on Raju has been living in um, in Uganda for a little while, uh, maybe a, a year or so, and his friend and mentor has arranged for him to to have essentially a, a, a conjugal visit with a uh, local indigenous with an African woman. It's not clear that whether she's being paid for this, but that's the assumption. And uh, so I'm just going to read a little bit from that. Do women enjoy this? Raju asks, gesturing towards the bed. He is standing at the open door of the shack, smoking. Grace's head is lowered, her eyes focused on her wrap, which she is adjusting. Sometimes, she says, yes. Earlier, after undressing, Grace walked towards Raju, placed her hands on his shoulders, gently pushing him back on the bed, and climbed on top of him. Raju had never been underneath a woman. 
He had never allowed a woman to control his body, to give him pleasure in this way. He had never believed it to be possible. Hussein's young son appears at the door. Grace rushes towards the toddler. She bends down so that her face is level with the boys and smiles broadly, her face forming an expression Raju has not seen before, exuding a light to which he has never been privy. Raju hears the boy's ayah calling out to him. I will take him to her, Grace says, brushing past Raju as she walks out the door, her hand tightly gripping the boys. Do you have children? He asks her when she is inside the shack. She shakes her head, looks at the floor near his feet. A husband? She runs her hand over her hair as she walks past him towards the bed. What about your father? He asks. Does he know what you do? My family lives far. But you are Manyankole, Raju says. No, she says, turning to face him. I am not from Ankole. But you speak Ranyankole, as do you. Raju feels foolish. It did not occur to him that she was not a local woman. He does not speak the language well enough to detect an accent. Nor has he perceived any differences in physical features among Africans. They are all blacks, karyas. But she is not black. There is nothing black about her, not even her hair, which shares with the African earth a tinge of red. Her skin is dark brown, very dark but it glows as though a steady fire is continually burning somewhere below it. He realizes now as he looks closely at her that her nose is smaller, wider than the noses of the Banyankole women he has met. Her eyes set closer together and deeper in her head. Why didn't your father look after you? He asks, angry now at this man's failure to protect her. Why must you do this work? She looks at him, at his eyes, she smiles, it is beatific, this smile. It does not suit her circumstances. You could work in a house, clean, look after children, he says. Would it not be better than this? Am I better than this, she asks, still smiling. Every woman is better than this. You need me and I am here. When you need water, you drink it. You don't ask it to be something better. Roger smiles, then laughs, tossing his cigarette to the ground. Thanks so much. Thank I uh... I love that scene. I, I thought it was pivotal. And I, I think the character of Grace is pivotal as well. So mm -hmm. um, I'm really, thank you for, for choosing that. I'm interested in talking a little more about your more recent work, about what you're working on now. Mm -hmm. The writer Helen Humphreys once told me that it's possible to write what she called a, a false book between projects. And what she meant by a false book was a book that fooled her into thinking that it was a book and that it turned out not to be a book. And uh, you know, when I was a younger writer, I was like, oh yeah, it's not gonna happen to me. And now I'm like, oh yeah, the false book, I so know it. Do you have something, not necessarily a false book, but something that happens between completed projects that changes how you think about the next project or influences you in some way? Yeah, I, I haven't heard that term. Um... Uh, but it's a great one. And yes, I have, I have had the experience of this um, false book. After I, after I wrote, completed Where They Are Sweet, I, uh, I was absolutely confident that I would write another novel, which is what I, I wanted to do. I, as long as I can remember, it's, fiction has been um, my calling in a way that journalism has been my work. And while I was sort of in between books and, you know, I had a job and young kids, uh, I, I sort of playing around with ideas for a novel. And I wrote a personal essay uh, for Chatelaine, uh, mostly uh, because a, a, a good friend of mine was um, the editor-in-chief at the time. And she sort of said, do you have anything you want to pitch us? Let me know. And so I, I, I wrote this essay about a year that my husband and I and our small children spent living in Tanzania. And that was the period in which I, I wrote the bulk of Where the Air is Sweet. 
my agent called me not long after that. He'd read the essay and he, he felt um, he was hearing some good feedback from people and he felt that there was a book potential there. A anyone who's tried to make any kind of income as a writer, <laughs> anytime you hear, oh, we could get some money for you to write this book, you know, it's, it's really hard to resist that temptation. And I thought, well, I think so. I think, you know, I think, I think there's something there. There's a lot of energy in, in this essay. There was a lot that went on in that year in uh, East Africa. And before I knew it, I was working on a proposal and very quickly had a, had a book deal to write this book. And then I sat down to write it and it was, uh, it was tough. And I, um, I hadn't attempted book length uh, nonfiction. This was going to be creative nonfiction. And everything I wrote, you know, I, I could tell, I could tell a narrative. I could tell what sort of what we did, what happened, but it, it just wasn't, uh, it wasn't singing to me. It wasn't, it didn't feel alive. You know, I, I had a deadline. I met the deadline. My editor was like, mm, it's not quite there. Took another stab, it's struggling. It was just, anyway, the, sh the short of it is we ended up canceling the deal because it was just not happening. And it was such a relief because I, I didn't want to write this book and it, and it was, it was, it was funny that, and, and it, I couldn't, I couldn't say that I didn't want to write this book. And I'm not saying I was, I was afraid to, I just, I, I couldn't admit it to myself because it seemed an easy enough thing to do. Um, but it, but it wasn't what I was talking about earlier uh, about trying to, to sort of stay true to what happened was constraining me. There's, there's a great uh, little anecdote. There's a uh, Linda Berry, who's uh, an illustrator and uh, writing coach. Uh, she, she gives this great uh, example of, you know, she says to tell me the first phone number that you can remember. I, I instantly remember my childhood phone number. And then she says, okay, now tell me your phone number three phone numbers ago. You can feel it's like a physical difference as you try to recall that three numbers ago versus the one that popped up from somewhere in your brain. And for me, the difference in writing the novel that I completed was the first phone number. And mm. the false book, the memoir that I tried to write was the two phone numbers back. It was a different part of my brain. Uh, my agent kept saying, you're kind of stuck in the journalist mode uh, in this manuscript. We need to get the novelist out. And, and I, I just felt too close to it. I mean, maybe in 25 years, I might revisit mm. that time and uh, write much more loosely. Might, maybe I needed the distance, I don't know, but it was, it was tough. And then there were the practicalities of my husband was in the story. And so I had to, you know, in fairness, let him read <laughs> drafts of it. And it became just stressful. And I thought, I'm, I'm not doing this again. This is just not, oh my God, this is not worth it. So what it taught me was enormous. And it was this, that um, I need to, when I am writing, I need to feel creatively free. And I just didn't with that. And, and, and I don't, I wouldn't even say that it's necessarily that it's technically nonfiction that was restricting me. I think it was, it was nonfiction that was too close still for me. Um, and, and it was kind of prescribed, right? Like I, I, I was paid to write this and, and it wasn't, it wasn't coming up from me organically. I didn't feel an impulse to do it. That is, that's important. I, I need to allow myself that space. And so after that, I, you know, I just started going back to just sort of writing scenes that came to me and they were all taking me to 1977, 1978, Kitchener, the music from the, that era, the, the, you know, the, the streets, the, the fashion, all of it. And, and so I was, it just started to write scenes. I have a couple of friends. We have a kind of peer-to-peer -peer mentoring group, uh, fellow writers, and we just started exchanging things. And I found 
whenever I submitted something, it was it was these stories. It, it did take a while because it's a little bit bruising going through the false book experience, right? I mean, it's it's only my second book, and I like you was like, oh no, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to write a book that isn't completed and published, and you know, and and um, mm-hmm. and I did, and and now I know uh, that I have to be centered and sort of present in what what I want, not just as a writer, but what do I want as a human being, right? Like I, this is what I want to be doing right now. Not I've got a deadline to meet. I've you know I've got to not let down the editor or whatever, whatever was, you know, compelling me because it wasn't coming from me. I didn't want to tell that story. I wasn't ready to. And so, yeah, that, that, that was my false book experience. Yeah. Well, you got to have the fire in the belly, right? You've got to have yeah. the, the idea that, yes, I, I, I want to do this. I want to write this because you know, everything about writing a book is, is hard and it's yeah. long. And if you don't have the fire in the belly, you're not going to move forward. Right. No. No, even if you put the words on paper, right? Because they're, they're not going to, they're going to feel false. It, it, it's actually the perfect name, the false book. It felt false. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this brings us full circle back to the book about Kitchener, about growing up in Kitchener that we were talking about um, at the top of our interview. Do you want to see more about it? Yeah. I mean, we, we've been talking about it as a kind of, a, so far as a kind of intuitive project, but mm-hmm. where do you see it going and what's your, what's your aim with it? It is a novel. It has a working title. Uh, it's called The Uncertainty Principle. Uh, I'm really playing with memory and, and literally in the book, uh, physics. And uh, I, I'm not uh, not a physics brain, but I've always been fascinated in a metaphorical sense um, uh, with physics, with quantum physics. And so I I thought I would take the, the notion of an of a, um, unreliable narrator and examine memory and also the relationship between two childhood friends. Uh, very, it's very much a book about women. Um, uh, where they are sweet, uh, uh, by no means planned. There was a lot of male energy in the book. And um, this one is different. It's a first person uh, narration and a very different voice. And as I said, uh, based, based in Kitchener, um, I'm sort of a, probably a third of the way through a draft. I'm aiming to have a, a a draft by the end of um, by the end of the year. It's, it's not necessarily the fastest uh, process that I have, um, but I've discovered that I tend not to have my output is a little bit slower than most. Uh, I, I, I tend when I write to, I don't know. I just um, it, it just feels like an emotional excavation a lot of it, and um, you know, it just takes time. And I, I'm able to explore uh, once again uh, explore themes that I kind of obsess about, um, memory being one of them. Um, betrayal and and it's a bit broad but it, you know this reality from a from a physical sense um and uh, sort of how we how, how we position ourselves in um the larger universe uh and um it's, it seems like a sort of huge question but i think that's why i'm telling it from a very narrow place uh, from that first person narration and from someone who doesn't know she's um she's kind of a liar. She doesn't realize this. She, she thinks she's really, really forthright um, hmm. with the reader and with herself. Uh, but there are a lot of blind spots and, and it's a really fun way to tell a story because it, it, it gives the reader quite a ride, you know, sort of the clues and what's going on, what's really going on. It sounds great. I, I love an unreliable narrator and yeah. that's, a, that's a great working title. I, I admire you for coming up with a good working title early because... Yeah. Titling is like the last thing I ever want to do, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I know. <laughs> but uh, I, I like uh, I like that you've uh, referred to Heisenberg, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. 
cool. And have you been um, moved to read any Heisenberg because of uh, because of it? Uh, very little. I've actually I just read um, Michael Frayn's um, play Copenhagen. Copenhagen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, I probably will read a little more Heisenberg. But I, I I can really go down rabbit holes, and and my my timeline is a little <laughs> it's a little tight. So I have to really resist that stuff because it's yeah, it's fascinating. Well, could you read us a, a little piece of it? I, I, I can't actually. What I was going to read um, is not from. It's a published short fiction that I, I just published oh, okay. a, a yep. couple months ago but it's it actually came out of that manuscript I guess I'd call it a chapter I'm sort of calling them sort of little little chunks and this um, particular story went in a slightly different direction and it wasn't going to fit in the narrative but it it had a life of its own so I ended up creating a short story out of it so I'm gonna I'm just gonna read the beginning of it yeah. and it's called um, paper crowns women shouldn't smoke I can't identify a moment in time or place when anyone stated this aloud, but I knew my mother believed it, and so I believed it. Women shouldn't speak loudly or have sex before marriage or state their opinions unless asked or make financial decisions without their husband's or father's approval. These were life rules. I don't know when exactly they were imparted to me, just as I didn't know when I had learned other simple edicts, such as to look both ways before crossing the road or to say thank you when someone gives you a gift or to close the screen door so mosquitoes don't come in. If you start smoking, I will kill myself. I remember precisely the moment my mother said these words. I was 11 and we were lying on her bed on a hot summer evening. We had earlier witnessed some teenagers, one of them the 15 year old daughter of my mother's friend. She was wearing faux leather high heeled boots, skin tight jeans and a tube top and was standing near the tire swing at Mackenzie King Public School, my school with a white girl and a white boy, blowing cigarette smoke upwards into the cloudless sky. The tire swing had once been my favorite apparatus at that playground, but recently my best friend Jenny had taken to standing while I sat on it and bending her knees and propelling the swing with such force for so long, despite my pleas to stop, that my stomach lurched and I would be forced to walk home where I remained nauseated for the rest of the day. I have no recollection of ever being at my school playground with my mother. But the image of the smoking girl remains a vivid tableau in my mind, the white teenagers framing the brown one. Looking back, perhaps my mother wasn't with me at all, and I only related what I had seen. Nevertheless, the image prompted these words from her, words that settled on my chest like a whole other person, like my brother when he would wrestle me to the ground. I stared at my mother. She was lying on her back, her eyes closed and her arm resting over her forehead. Her lips were pursed slightly and moving not trembling, but almost, as though she were lost in a dream. I looked away and pictured my father's Rothmans, always within his reach, on the side table, on the kitchen table, in the front pocket of his work overalls. My mother placed an ashtray in every room of our house, even the bathroom, for him. They were pretty ashtrays, made of clay and sometimes of glass, always in tones of orange or brown or green. One day she watched as I handed my father a clay ashtray I had made for him in art class. I had painted it bright orange. Though she smiled when I proudly gave it to him, I know my mother thought my orange clay ashtray was ugly. She didn't say this, but she didn't display it anywhere in the house either. 
Thanks. Man, oh, smoking, smoking culture, eh? Remember the ashtrays? <laughs> oh, yeah. In absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> made, out, made out of your hand, right? The impression of your hand. Right, in the fingers. <laughs> so, the, so the cigarettes can go in the fingers. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, no, my, my dad smoked too. And it's it was a whole culture, right? And then yeah. all of a sudden it wasn't. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that's certainly something that's that's going to situate this in a in a particular time. Mm-hmm. Um I, I love that, first of all, the, the mother's um, dramatic statement that if you start smoking, I'll, I'll kill myself, I think is, mm-hmm. is quite a statement, right? But that sight of the that sight of the three kids who are actually no longer quite kids anymore because they're 11 and 12 years old, right? Mm-hmm. And those, those bodily changes and the smoking. Um, uh, would you call this a, a coming of age novel? Yeah, there, there, uh, there's definitely elements of that for sure. It'll cover a long period, but I would say I would say it's it really examines the, the, the sort of pivotal period is is at that 10, 11, 12 girls. So you're sort of a, a child just on the cusp of yeah. not a child. And it's a really rich, rich time. And, you know, I, I have to ask you about uh, pandemic writing. Mm. You know, it's been a year. And of course, there was that notion went around that everyone was going to have uh, the time to, to write their magnum opus which of course was quickly dispelled by the amount of other work that we all had to do and so now we've had to think about pandemic writing differently so how have you been thinking of it it hasn't affected me enormously except that i i've become accustomed to writing with other people in the house like i used to enjoy friday was my writing day where nobody was home uh, kids were at school husband was at work and i i would have the house to myself uh, and that's been a bit strange um i don't really legitimately even have a room that's always my own I can maybe go to my bed but somebody kind of wanders in and it was it was bothering me and I had I had to sort of snap out of that luxury that if I want to do this um I am just gonna have to do it and so in a sense it's actually it's actually helped me I mean, I was thinking of Jane Austen, right? Wasn't she writing with people walking in and out of the room and she'd sort of hide her manuscript in the living well, room? Under the embroidery. Yeah, under the embroidery, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it was a bit of a luxury. And so, yeah, and so in that sense, it, I've, I've been just as busy, probably more busy in my job. Um, but, you know, we have we adapt, don't we? <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. In fact, it's all been all about uh, adapting. Mm-hmm. So we're coming to the end of our time. I want to thank you for uh, joining us and for not only uh, discussing your your novel, but of course your your latest work. And I very much look forward to reading uh, The Uncertainty Principle when it comes out. When do you estimate coming out? Gosh, you know publishing, right? I, I, my aim is is draft one this year. And then usually it's a couple of years once you even sort of have it completed. Uh, Where the Air Suite was quite a bit longer, but there were other things going on that. So I, I, it would it would be it, it would it'll be at least two or three years. But I, I, in the meantime, I, I think I want to continue to publish short fiction here and there. I think it's, um, I find it really important um, to feel like I've got stuff out there. And yeah. um, so I will keep doing that in the meantime. But yeah, yeah, this will be a little bit slower, but, but it'll, it'll come. I've, I've hit that point where um, it's, it's, uh, it's got its own energy. It's kind of going yeah. now. Yeah. So and, and big part of a writer of uh, being a writer is um, just being really fond of delayed gratification. Yeah, <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Or at least Whether we want to it. be or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you yeah. so much for joining um, me here My on uh, Watershed Writers. Thank you, thank you. I enjoyed this. Thank you for listening to our interview with Tasneem Jamal, Episode Six of Watershed Writers. 
We are about halfway through our planned episodes for this radio documentary series. While we contemplate what more we might do, especially if we do a second season of Watershed Riders, this is a good time to think back on what we've done so far and what our intentions were when we started. Listeners might not know this, but I'm the author of six books and I'm working feverishly away on the seventh in between teaching, writing, and Canadian literature and reading way too much. I bring an outsider's perspective to this show. Though I live in Waterloo, I am not from the Grand River Watershed region originally. I'm from Treaty One territory, the traditional territories of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, and the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. Winnipeg, where I lived for the first 21 years of my life, is named after the brown waters of the Assiniboine River. Its origins in the Cree words, win, meaning muddy, and nipe, meaning water. Going to get a good look at the Grand River was one of the first things I did when I moved here. So I'm a prairie person, a little displaced and living thousands of miles away from my nearest relative. I've lived in Waterloo since 2006, which is long enough to consciously think of the place as home and not long enough to subconsciously think of it as home. But living here has prodded me to examine what locality means and what more it could mean, especially in literature as art and literature as an industry. Our aims of watershed writers are to find writers living in the region who have been carrying their cultural projects forward, doing the hard work and often not getting the credit they deserve. And they're doing so in a region that posts Creativity is right here, banners, about the tech industry. Believe me, I would love it if those banners referred to the wealth of writers and artists in the region, but at last, they do not. In the spirit of being the change I want to see in the world, when Francis Roberts Riley started talking to me about the possibility of this show, I said yes. And what a wealth of writers we've interviewed so far. In our first five episodes, Aaron Bow talked about blood magic, writing YA fiction and hunting with eagles. Janice Jolie sang beautifully and spoke eloquently about race and politics and playwriting. A trio of poets from the anthology Sweet Water, Poems for the Watersheds, talked about water, ecology, and global environmentalism. Another trio, the writers and editors from Textile Magazine talked about community engaged writing and diversity on the page and in organizations. Mike Chalk shared his search for his Inuit heritage and Sarah Tolmy talked about how Ursula K. Le Guin gave her a hand up when she least expected it. I had an inkling that a few of these stories were out there and I've had a surprise with every single episode because writers always have so much more to say if you give them a chance to say it. So Watershed Writers is for readers and also for writers of all stripes, local, national, well-known, unknown, with a first publication or with many publications. We're living up to our tagline listening local, talking global, as our show and podcasts are heard throughout the Grand River country and beyond. Future episodes will feature 
Janet Rogers, the Haudenosaunee writers who has started up her own press on Six Nations, and Luke Hathaway, the former Waterloo writer who has been working from Nova Scotia recently. And there's much more. But you'll have to keep listening on CKWR 98.5 or check out our website for podcasts, special features, and upcoming episode at watershedwriters.ca. And none of this would happen without my production teammates. Martin DeGroot, our liaison with CKWR and the host of Promenade. Brendan Highmore, our technical producer who can make even a Zoom call sound great. And Frances Roberts-Riley, who is using her years of experience with the BBC and the CBC to produce this show and to keep us all in line. My thanks to our audience members who listen and the team who brings Watershed Writers to you. Watershed Writers is produced by Francis Roberts Riley with technical production by Brendan Highmore. Our first season is hosted by CKWR 98.5 in Waterloo Region with support from Region of Waterloo Arts Fund and in partnership with Idea Exchange and the Waterloo Public Library. Our theme music is Water by Alicia Brilla from her album, Rooted. Rooted.